Thanks, Tyler. I, uh, you read that like you meant it. Thank you. That was fantastic. Um, it is a joy to be with you. My name is Dee. I'm one of the pastors here. And to have the privilege um, of digging with you into this passage of Scripture. And I am delighted to look at this psalm, Psalm 27. I do want to uh, make a couple comments as a preface in telling you about some things that are happening in the life of the church or in some ways more specifically um, my life and my wife's life. We are departing on this Wednesday morning for a trip to the Holy Land and um, are incredibly excited about this. We have uh, just a wonderful opportunity, a couple in our San Diego community invited us to go along on this study trip. Um, they've never attended our church. I have just come to know him through a small group that I go to once a month for the last several years, and he asked if we wanted to come along with them and are so excited about an opportunity that I thought would never happen in my lifetime. I was thinking this might be post-death to get the chance to see the Holy Land, but... Um, it's happening, and uh, leave on Wednesday, our trip will span two Sundays, so I want to fill you in on what's happening here in the course of the next two Sundays. Um, Sunday, uh, a week from today, uh, Jeremy Schulteis will be the speaker in here. Um, I conveyed that to the early service, and I let them know that I would suggest to Jeremy that he slow down a little bit in that service. We... <laughs> know that Jeremy has gone to the Jared Callahan School of Rapid Preaching, and (laughs) so I'm encouraging him to experiment with other methods of delivering the content that he has. I'm excited for you because he's already taken some time to share with me his work on the passage of Scripture for next week, and some of the things that uh, God is bringing out of that passage. I told him that they were so good I might use them this week. Um, And so it would sound like they were my own ideas because there's some good work on some excellent passages that are part of the readings that we're looking at as we're on this journey of discipleship. The following week, in the early service, Herb Prince is speaking. In this service, Tim Hall is speaking. And so we just have a great all-star lineup that I know you won't want to miss. And then I'm looking forward to being back with you the week following and uh, continuing this journey that continues through our speakers as well um, the next two weeks. But as many of you know, I know some are guests, and it's so nice to have you here this morning. We're in a series where we're looking at what it means to follow in the steps of Jesus, what we have to learn, the things that uh, will enhance our journey and draw us closer to God in the process and being the kind of people that God calls us uh, to be or desires for us to be. And that that is the best us we can be. So that's what we're looking at in this particular passage. And I would like to start with uh, a story that kind of sets a framework. The title of this message is a really odd title, I know. The title is, Was Jesus a Baritone? And that's not um, a question we often contemplate in our studies or our devotional reflections, but I have used the question for a very intentional reason. I want you to get you thinking about some things that I hope spill over into your own life. 
One of the downsides of having a pastor more than a few years in a location is that you hear some stories that are told more than once. And I know you've heard at least portions of this before, but um, sometimes they help set a framework for different passages, and this feels like it's true for me. Um, it begins in my uh, early years in high school. My freshman and sophomore year in high school, I was part of a pretty good high school choir. Um, the choir won a couple citywide competitions. We, uh, at least if you were judging it by um, those types of activities, we did well. I somehow made the mistake of thinking that because I was part of a good choir, that meant I was a good singer. That's not necessarily the case. It turns out anybody who signs up for choir can attend in high school. So I'm guessing that my choir director just positioned me in places where I would not disrupt everyone else, or at least they could carry me or hide me or cover up. I'm not sure which. My junior year in high school, my family moved to a different location where I attended a different high school and a different church and was immediately taken with a stunning uh, woman in my youth group, person in my youth group, whose uh, journey was very musical in nature. She was part of a uh, ladies' quintet. Her name was Kay Carpenter. And she sang every bit as good as Karen Carpenter. And I was completely for a lifetime smitten and I thought what's the great way to get the attention of someone who's that musical well of course it's to start my own guys quartet that would be the way to go about that so that was my strategy I recruited some outstanding individuals Joel Heaton he ended up traveling with a group later on in years around the country they were probably international I guess I don't know I recruited Phil Starr, who had this uh, just wonderful, rich, deep voice. Um, I recruited Fred Shank, who was a great piano player and could sing as well. At one point in his journey, I think just to irritate his parents, changed his name to Fried Shank, legally changed it to Fried Shank. I'm not exactly sure why, but so Fried Shank was part of my group as well. I, I wasn't exactly sure what we were going to sing, but I went searching for music and um, not realizing really how far out of my element I was. This wonderful lady whom I was interested, she did all of the arrangements for their group. So she took wonderful songs and made it fit for a quintet. I was just looking for something that four guys could sing and hoping that we might get a chance to sing in church or at some other place. And I might catch her attention. So I gathered the guys over to my house. We started rehearsing around the piano. And a little ways into it, Fred or Freed, depending on uh, his mood, looked up at me and he said, Dee, you are so sharp. Really, really sharp. And I said, thanks, but we really need to get... <laughs> back to singing um, <laughs> and nail this thing. I was that night kicked out of my own quartet. 
we were at my house. I had no place to go. I had to just <laughs> sit there and get the refreshments and serve them. It was not one of my better evenings. So to ask, was Jesus a baritone? I do know what a baritone is, though I may not be able to carry the baritone line. But this question strikes me as important, and I hope you will see before the end of this, it's not the answer that's important, but where the question leads me. Jesus in his journey makes reference several times to Scripture, weaves it into his responses and into his teachings. Likewise, he weaves it into the ways in which he um, engages people into their faith by using excerpts that come from several Old Testament passages, including the book of Psalms. He makes reference to Psalm 118, 110, Psalm 69, Psalm 22. If you don't know this, I'm thrilled to be the first to let you know that the book of Psalms is a book of songs. It's like a hymn book. Now, I know that it doesn't have all the melodies or the musical staffs or the notes. We have long since lost those. I don't know what the tunes were or if the way by which they sang the psalms were different than we might conceive of singing a variety of hymns. But over the course of several generations, these songs were written, collected, and became part of sacred literature. So I'm not sure when Jesus quotes from them, he's quoting from songs that he knows. But there is something about songs that is significantly different than other things in which we engage in our journey. It taps into a part of who we are. A, a part of our brain literally gets fired up when we begin to sing. There's a wonderful clip that I think you can find online that shows a wonderful sociologist who stumbled upon um, a new approach with patients who had a particular type of dementia. He would take the tiny little eye, not pads, but the eye music, whatever it is, and would find out their favorite... Sorry, I, I should know my stuff better. An eye little thing. And would, thank you, would find out the songs that these elderly people loved when they were in their teens and 20s. He put together a playlist and he would give these individuals the music. Some of them almost, not completely, but completely unresponsive to most stimuli, start playing those songs that tapped in both to a part of their brain and a part of their memory, and they came alive. To watch it happen on video is so moving. But it taps into a different part of who we are. 
So what difference does that make? Well, I want to talk about Psalm 27, both in terms of its content, but also in terms of it as a medium by which the content is delivered. So two layers of this that I think are incredibly important. The psalm itself begins, You are my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You are the stronghold of my life. Why should I be afraid? It's a beautiful start. It it feels like it ought to be the start to some kind of song. It seems like it should be set to music, and I need to let you know it already has been. We just don't know what the tune is. It, It is a wonderful passage that feels poetic because it is poetic. When we look at the book of Psalms, it reads much like poetry, but because it's a translation, we don't even pick up the nuances of the poetry in its original language, so we're even another step removed from the way in which it was originally used in worship, in teaching, in spiritual journey. So we have this passage But it's almost as if the person who's writing this is being incredibly um, cognitive about it, thinking it through, trying to talk him or herself out of their fears. You are my light, you're my salvation, so there's really no good reason for me to be afraid right now. You are my stronghold, so I really shouldn't be shaking like I'm shaking right now. Almost as if somebody is trying to talk themselves out of the circumstance that they're in and very much doing like cognitive therapy. I'm, I'm going to work my way through the illogic of being frightened in this moment, but then begins to enumerate all the reasons why I have good reason to be afraid. There are some bad people that are out there. And I know that something may happen to them, but, but I'm telling you, um, things could happen to me as well. I, I even think that an army could rise up against me today. It says in there. It begins to enumerate such things as my parents either have forsaken me or they might sometime forsake me goes down the list of all of the things that could happen. It is this mental argument that seems to rest all up in the head to try and convince myself that I'm okay. Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is something that I want to tell you about disciples, followers of Christ. It is not a thinking exercise. It includes that. But thinking comes to an end. It is a call to engage and to allow all of who we are to participate. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, James, and John, come think with me. Come, let us do some mental exercises about theology. 
he says, come, follow. He doesn't even ask them, get it all figured out, and then come follow me. He doesn't say, once you finally believe and agree to everything that you've heard me say, then come follow. He doesn't say any of that. He says to them, as fishermen, just come follow, tag along, and watch what happens. Participate with me and watch how the head and the heart come together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. We have some interesting sayings we use. We accept Jesus into our heart. We know what the heart looks like. We've either been through biology class or watched TV. We know what the heart looks like. We know that that's not a, really a literal statement, but it's an attempt to articulate something that means Jesus comes into the soul of who we are, takes ownership of us. I remember when I was about five years old, my uncle and his family, my cousins, went to Papua New Guinea. He was a medical missionary. And the way by which we communicated was we had this reel-to-reel tape recorder. And my dad would sit around the table with us and we'd record greetings to my uncle and, and aunt and the kids and send it off to Papua New Guinea. I assume where they were at, they had a reel-to-reel recorder. Otherwise, it was a really foolish thing for us to do. But I know they had something to record on because we'd get tapes back. And we'd listen to them, and it was an incredible way to hear some amazing stories. And I remember one of the things my uncle said as he was trying to communicate to some um, tribal groups the good news, that the particular groups with whom he was working believed that the stomach was the center place of a person's journey. It was their soul. It was truly who they were, their stomach. And so the good news message was to receive Jesus into your stomach. It's an attempt to use words to say something that really can't fully be described by words. And we do it all the time. We have colloquialisms such as, I just, it felt like it washed right over me. Well, nothing washed over me. It's just that's the feeling that happened. It sent shivers up and down my spine. Well, maybe that literally happens, but sometimes it doesn't, but we use the line. It, it so moved me. Well, I didn't change positions. It's just a way to describe that it's something more than like a thought I thought. It was more than just a calculation I made. It just took over who I was. It moved me. That's faith. Faith is engaging more than just the head in debate or conversation. It's sometimes true that those thoughts can then sweep over you. But it's tough to describe with words, what it's like to feel forgiveness. 
to be moved by grace, to be embraced by love. We know what it's like for our body to feel fear. It's more than just a head experience because I can think with my head, I really shouldn't be afraid right now, but my body's not listening to what my head is saying. Jesus, through the psalmist, encourages us to seek God's face. Oh, Lord, don't hide your face from me. Your face, oh, Lord, I seek because when I catch a glimpse, then it will sweep over me that I am yours. Not just that I think I'm yours, but I'm yours, Lord. We sometimes have occasions, sometimes very sad occasions, sometimes joyous occasions, where we have all kinds of cut flowers that uh, cover a stage. They look beautiful, but they're dead. They just don't know it yet. They've been cut off of their source, and we have beautiful blooms, and they just, wow, look at that. But they're all dead. Scripture tells us, Jesus' words in chapter 15, remain in me as I remain in you. Because the branch that is detached from the vine cannot produce fruit. Those get tossed away, collected, burned, thrown into the fire because they've withered and died. The only way it can bear fruit is to stay connected to the vine. And Jesus says, likewise, Neither can you be apart from me and bear fruit. In fact, he's very clear. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's great that at church, we can have some wonderful blossoms and blooms. It's frightening to think that we might be separated from the source. We have to stay connected to Jesus. And then the nourishment that comes through the branch that comes through the individual to produce an outcome that Jesus says you can ask whatever you will and it will bring, be done for you so that my Father might be glorified so that others can see the fruit that you bear and know that you belong to me. We get so wrapped up in the ending of that verse about ask anything, anything. Why doesn't that always happen when I ask anything? When we ought to be dwelling on what comes before that and that's to stay connected to the source, all the other stuff will take care of itself if we get first things done right. And so this call to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, this medium of song does that. I don't know what it is for you. I had this wonderful um, contrast in people in a glorious moment Thursday night in your church board meeting. Um, one of the great privileges of the people who represent you in some of the decision makings in this place is that the church board gets to interview and walk through with somebody in their journey in ministry if they feel called into the ministry. And so we have interviews where we get a chance to affirm their giftedness, talk about their calling, see where they are on this journey of both experience and education, and walk alongside them. Two were part of that meeting. One of them was Jeremy Schulteis, the other was Kenny Ortega. Two wonderful people that are part of this church and on this journey of following God's calling on their life. And in the course of the conversation, 
It was interesting. They both talked about a similar kind of thing, not knowing that the other one had done so as well. And it was the result of two very different questions. But one of the questions resulted in Kenny Ortega talking about a musical project he's been working on for quite some time. And at the end of March, it will be completed, um, a CD, a, a project that he's working on. And, and I just, it was wonderful and it was a great time to celebrate. He conveyed to us how very often in the morning he turns on his playlist of music and he begins to think about the day that he's stepping into and the music sets the tone as it ministers to his heart and sets the stage for what's to come. In contrast, Jeremy was there and, and I, I, the question I think was asked of him, um, tell us if you have any giftedness or strength envy of other people, what would it be that you don't have that you wish you had? And he said, well, I probably, I asked him permission, but I didn't tell him I was going to say this specific line. <laughs> Just kind of a blanket, yeah, you can tell that. But anyway, he said, I'm tone deaf. And um, sometimes I pretend I can sing along, but I really don't sing along real well. And I look at other people who can do that and think, wow, that would be a great gift to have. Loved that honesty. But he then went on to say, talk about the way in which he engages all of who he is in worship and following Christ. His pattern of prayer, his pattern of Sabbath keeping, his joy of music, along with several other pieces that are part of the way by which he moves all of who he is toward God. It was so wonderful to see this contrast and yet this unity in like-mindedness, like-heartedness. So here's what I need to say. There's no formulaic way by which this happens. You're different than I am. I'm different than you are. I, I can't say this is how you ought to engage music or this is how you ought to appreciate art or this is what you ought to do in terms of taking time to walk in nature and allow God to touch you in that way. I, I'm not exactly sure if you are one who is moved by the kinds of icons that are used in a worship service and, and brought into worship by that. I don't know if there are particular artists or maybe it's a a secular artist who moves your spirit beautifully. That's fantastic. I don't know what it is, but the call is that your faith is not just a mental exercise. It is a call to engage. And eventually, as we engage, it calls us to be in places where if I'm a teacher, I am teaching engaged with Christ. If I am a mechanic. I am working on an engine and I find somewhere in there this beauty that as I'm working with my hands, God is taking a hold of all of me. Faith is about all of you. It is the Spirit filling us and taking a hold of the things that we do and giving us the opportunity to respond to Jesus' call. Come follow me. Come participate. See what happens when you engage in some service. 
See what happens when you sing along and learn through the music. Tag along with me, but get engaged. It's amazing when the body begins to lead the head. When the heart moves the thoughts. When the experience helps to form my theology. It's not either or, it's both and. And my encouragement to you is, find what works for you. It may be that you imitate someone else for a while just to see how somebody else engages with music. You go, well, that didn't work real well, or that was fantastic. Or it might be a conversation that says, tell me about how you pray, how you worship, how you um, let your heart become engaged in this, or your stomach, if you're from Papua New Guinea, or if you really enjoy food. I don't know. This is a call to do our highest calling. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Let the medium of this scripture, the songbook, remind you of a question. Was Jesus a baritone? I'm not sure. Matthew 26, verse 30, says at the end of their meal, they sang a hymn together and left for the garden. I'm not sure what parts the disciples sang. I'd love to know what song it was. I'd love to know who picked it. It doesn't matter whether you're a baritone, a soprano, or can't carry a tune. The invitation is... Let all of you engage. Let's tag along with our Savior and see where he leads us. Father, I'm so grateful. Grateful, grateful for this church. Grateful for musicians. Grateful for prayers. Grateful for those who um, lead us as teachers and those who have already used their vocation in incredible ways to honor you and worship you by what they do. Father, wash over us. Take our breath away. You said in that chapter 15, where you taught us about staying connected to you and remaining in you, that you have told us these things so that your joy may be in us and our joy may be complete. So Lord, this morning, that's what we long for. A place where fear begins to subside because our body, our souls, our hearts, and our mind are remaining in you. All of who we are, Lord, teach us what that means and how we as disciples can fully engage in being loved by you, loving you, and thereby loving others. Thank you, Father. Amen.